to another edition of Ask the Experts. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dave Callender, and with me on the show again this hour is Canada's number one real estate agent. It's Faisal Suziwala of Remax Twin City Realty. Hi, Faisal. How are you doing? Hi, thanks, David. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, keeping busy, and I, I assume you still are as well, because it doesn't seem like the real estate market is letting up here in Kitchener-Waterloo. My goodness, it's been busier now than ever. Uh, I, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, just a complete frenzy in the marketplace. As you listen to the show today, if you'd like to get more information, here's how you do it. Just go online to homeshack.com. That's Faisal's website. Uh, you'll find them at 1400 Bishop Street in Cambridge, and you can call 519-624-5555. And if you, you still can't get enough Faisal after watching the show today, you can, of course, always pick up his book, The Real Deal, which is, of course, still selling very well on Amazon and, and other places where you can buy fine books. So, uh, Faisal, let's start the show off, well, as we usually do, by getting a market update. What's been going on? Well, this market has been completely insane. We're still seeing those infamous bidding wars happening, and uh, there's a lack of inventory in certain sectors of the market, but not right across the board, which is uh, an inviting uh, uh, change from what has been going on uh, from the beginning of the year. So we're starting to see some inventory creep up in the lower priced homes. Uh, a lot of people are exiting their investment properties, which now will open up to you know, other buyers that may have been sitting on the sidelines waiting for the calm to occur. And we're seeing a little bit of calming in that lower price range as opposed to the higher end, which surprisingly is doing phenomenally well. And that's attributed to the lack of inventory in the higher end now. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that at least a little bit more inventory is showing up on, on the market. How are we doing with new construction? How's that going? New construction, uh, there isn't a lot of it happening, unfortunately, and this is the challenge that the market is facing. The supply is very low. Uh, of course, with COVID, uh, materials are not being produced as quickly as we would like. The cost of materials have gone up significantly, which causes a real problem for builders who would have sold properties, let's say, last year with closings coming into this year and the price of lumber has gone up 40, 50, even 100% in some areas. Um, and just all of those costs, labor has slowed down, timelines have slowed down. So the cost of everything has increased significantly, which is slowing down everything, including closings. So we don't have that supply, which is, again, the reason why this demand is continuing to increase and we're just not seeing any light at the end of the tunnel as far as that's concerned. Tell me, with, with vaccines on the horizon, I, I finally got my first jab the other day, which yay, yay me, but I, there seems to be this feeling that, you know, we will get back to normal eventually later this year, hopefully. What do you see happening once uh, things start returning more to normal? Yeah, I agree. There will be a little bit more of a sort of flattening out, but there's still this pent up demand. It's just not going away. Uh, we're still getting, you know, 10, 12 offers on, 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 on homes that are well priced. We're still seeing that influx of 
in, uh, buyers that are coming into this marketplace from Toronto, Milton, Mississauga, Brampton, Oakville, Burlington, that whole de-urbanization movement, that whole work from home environment has created such a high demand in our region. And rightfully so, we, we have a beautiful region and people are noticing it. And we're finally uh, at a point where people are saying, that's where I want to live. And I'm willing to pay big bucks to live there. Now, uh, before we started the show, Faisal was good enough to give me a crash course on what's been happening uh, regarding open bidding and blind bidding uh, when it comes to uh, purchasing a home. So, uh, Faisal, fill us in. What is the controversy that's going on right now? So this is a big upheaval that's happening in the marketplace right now where, you know, we're getting buyers that are saying, okay, enough of this uh, blind bidding process. We want to have open bidding. We want to know what the other person is offering so we can make an informed decision. So there are pros and cons to both. With the current state, only blind bidding is permitted. Uh, the Real Estate Council of Ontario does not permit realtors to disclose who the buyer is, what the terms of the other offer are. In most cases, we can't even say who the other agent is. Um, and certainly we cannot disclose what the price being offered is from the other buyer. Now the seller is in the driver's seat. The seller sees all six, seven, 10 offers on the table and can make a selection from that. Now it's not necessarily always the best and highest price that's winning the transaction. There are other considerations like are there conditions, are there contingencies, does someone need to sell a home, do they need to get their financing, um, is there a home inspection required, are there certain dates that don't work. So there's a lot of moving parts that will play a role in which offer a seller will accept. Let's run through that process for a moment. So I received seven offers on a property that I'm asking $700,000 for. Someone may come in at seven, seven twenty-five, seven fifty, seven seventy-five, eight hundred, and so on. And the highest offer we have on the table is eight fifty. Now, of course, no one knows what place they are sitting at in that offer process. The person who came in at eight fifty made a conscious decision that this is the number they're willing to pay, just as the person who came in at seven hundred thousand. If that person knew that the best offer on the table was already 850, they wouldn't have come to the table at all. The seller would have probably not gotten the 850 because they've already seen what the increments were on those offers. So that's the reason that this blind bidding process has worked very well for the process of the seller selling and getting the highest bid. In that process, many realtors We'll say, okay, here's seven offers, here's eight offers. Which one do you like? Which one meets your expectations? What meets, beats, or attains the target or the goal that we had set? If that goal and target has been met, let's accept the offer. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is you take the best offer, which is the $850,000. There's a bank draft attached to it. We know we've got a deal. We're already happy with that transaction. But we go back to the other six individuals that have made the offer and say, we're going to give you another shot. Do you want to change any terms of your offer? Do you want to remove any conditions? Do you want to increase your price? Do you want to withdraw? Here are all your options. What do you want to do? Until someone meets or beats the 850 that you have on the table. At that point, you go back to the person that's got the 850 on the table and say, hey, I'm going to give you another shot. 
is this the best you want to come in at? Or do you want to increase your price, make any changes? And that's where you see the blind bidding process being advantageous to the seller, not so much to the buyer. And there's no legislation that says you have to pick the best offer. Look, we're in Canada. We're in a free market. People have to stop saying there has to be controls over this system. We're in a free market. We want to be in a free market. A buyer's willing to pay what they're willing to pay. A seller's willing to accept what, there's, what they're willing to accept. And it's a free market. It's an open market. And that's what sets market value. Here's the problem that we're having, that people feel that they are overpaying because they realize maybe after a month goes by, two months goes by, that someone who had made an offer uh, was only at seven hundred. They paid one hundred fifty thousand dollars more than that person, but they don't know what other things were going on in that transaction. With the open bidding process, each individual would be made aware of what the other offers are. But according to the regulations that are set out by our governing body right now, we're not allowed to disclose that. So there's a conflict right there. Legislation would have to change with our council to allow us to open that. But be careful what you wish for. Wanting an open bid, if any of us have been to an auction, you're going to quickly realize that sometimes it doesn't, it's not about the product that you are bidding on. It, now about winning and that's where the frenzy comes in that's where the emotions start coming in remember in blind bidding you had the time to think about it make a thoughtful decision look at comparables and say i'm going to offer seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for that home someone else would have said that home's got a pool and it's got certain features that i like i'm going to offer eight hundred fifty thousand. they come in knowing that that's possibly the only offer that they've got that's the only opportunity they may only have one shot they're putting their best foot forward there's no guarantee that they're going to get that home and they're not going to get caught up in this bidding process of an auction where someone's going to say okay you've got 850 on the on, on the block here let me offer you 851 someone comes in 855 now you're seeing now you've got an open bidding and i've been to auctions and and you know i've i've fallen into that trap where i almost paid an enormous amount of additional money for a vehicle because i had to have it and i had to beat the guy that was bidding up against me so these are all considerations um legislation would have to change the names would get disclosed all of a sudden of who the other buyers are the terms would be disclosed we would find out um do they have a house to sell well where's that house so there's a lot of confidential information that happens in blind bidding, which I would like to keep confidential for myself and for my clients. I don't think that it's in anyone's best interest to go out and say, well, this guy's got a house to sell. He's putting 20% down. His deposit is 50,000. And from a seller's perspective, um, how do you know that that deal is going to close? How do you know that that's not happening out of an emotional reaction because you're in that process? Are you going to have to make a deposit ahead of time? Are you going to have to have a letter of credit from your bank saying, uh, you know, David's good for that $100,000 deposit? Because if David chooses to back out, that $100,000 is going to be kept. So there's a lot of moving parts that happen in both scenarios for as ever long as we've had uh, transactions in our marketplace, it has always been blind bidding. In Australia, 
you see open bidding, you can go on YouTube and see some of these transactions and you'll see um, what goes on. And, and, and sometimes you see these bids just getting completely out of hand and emotions are high. And it's no different than, you know, if you're watching television shows and watching the storage wars and that type of thing, people will pay an enormous amount of money for something for perceived value and just to beat the other guy. So before the break, Faisal, we were talking about the idea that uh, there are some people who want open bidding as opposed to Canada's blind bidding system when it comes to purchasing a home. Uh, I guess my next question is, how likely is it that these, these rules will change? What, what would have to happen for the rules to change? Well, it's a provincial mandate, really. The province would have to come down and say, okay, enough of this blind bidding process. We want open bidding and we're going to change the legislation that uh, real estate agents follow, which, me, which says clearly we're not allowed to disclose who the offers are from, what the, what the other offers are, or any terms or details of the other offer. I think it's a very complex um, change that would have to occur. Uh, I certainly don't support it. And it's not because I want people to overpay. I think it takes the thoughtfulness out of the process. It takes the uh, research out of the process and it involves way too much emotion in a moment of time where you're in an open bid auction environment where that frenzy, it could cause you to make the wrong decision and you may buy something just because you want it to win. And you know we're programmed and we're wired that way. Uh, and that's a big concern to me. Uh, I certainly am not against it. If it can be, if there can be a hybrid model where we can have a little bit of both and perhaps only the number is exposed, but not the other details, uh, that might be something. But even in that situation, how do you remove the emotion of someone knowing that they're about to lose something for 5,000 and they come up another 10? And then the next person says, well, I'm gonna lose it for 10. I'll come up another five. Where does that end? So again, you know, I caution on being careful for what we wish for here. Well, uh, given the pros and cons, it seems like you're fairly well in the con column, but are there, are there any pros if we switch to an open bidding system? Well, it, yeah, the transparency is the pro. I'm not against transparency. I'm against the emotional aspect of an auction. And that's simply how I can put it. That's the only element that we've never tested in Canada. If you want to try, if you want to test it out, or at least be a spectator on it, Google or watch YouTube videos on how it's done in Australia. I'm not convinced that that's the right way to do it in Canada. What What do you see happening in Australia? A lot of last minute frenzied bidding, or absolutely, everybody's gathered around, sometimes outside of the home, and raising like it's no different than being at a at a farm auction or or a car auction or an art gallery auction. It's Open bidding is open bidding. It's an auction. Okay, well, some good good thoughts to keep in mind. Uh, but as you say, it would it would require quite a bit for the rules to change. I'm interested in your idea of of hybrid rules, though. How would you ideally want those to work if some sort of hybrid system came in? The hybrid would be, I, I could equate it more to a silent auction. And we've all been to events where they've had silent auctions. Uh, there's a piece of paper, you put in your bid, you know what the last person offered. You uh, maybe have a registration number so you don't see a name, you just see the registrant. Uh, 
the, uh, there has to be some form of a deposit uh, uh, that the real estate office would hold uh, as in trust so that if your bid was successful, you can't back out of it. And there, it's more of a silent, it's not an open emotional uh, bidding where you have no thoughtfulness in, uh, involved. It's all, I see that guy, I don't like how he looks and I'm gonna beat him. That's what I'm trying to eliminate in this process, that auction aspect of it. So the silent where it's a registration, you don't have to disclose the number. The terms don't have to be disclosed, but all of those terms, whether you're um, uh, having to sell a home or you have a condition on financing or inspection, there should be codes for that. I still think that there's something to be said for confidentiality and keeping that. So if we just want to expose the number, fair enough, expose the number but do it in a manner in which it's somewhat controlled and there's some thought put behind it as opposed to the frenzy that I've seen in other environments where they do these auctions. Fair enough. Uh, moving on, I know that you wanted to talk this hour a little bit about uh, people who are going to be retiring soon, talking about retirement and the fact that, you know, you're if you make a move, it, it could be a move into your, your final home, your, 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 your last home purchase. So let's talk about that. And if it's a good time for retirees to sell and, and why. We've talked about um, real estate and holdings for many, many of the episodes that I've been on with you, David. And one of the things that I've always said is that I never recommend selling real estate. Uh, I always recommend holding real estate. I always recommend accumulating your real estate because that will take you through to retirement. It's income that you can live off of. It's a legacy that you can leave behind for your family. Um, so I'm not in favor of ever selling real estate. However, given the climate that we are in right now, I've had a lot of my clients, and I've been in the business over 32 years, uh, that were 40 or 45 years old when I first met them, and they're in their 70s now. And those folks are calling me and saying, Faisal, I've got a million-dollar house here. It's paid off. I have my investment properties. I have my nest egg. Um, what do I do? So there's a couple of factors that we have to take into consideration today. One of them is, is there going to be government legislation that's going to capital gain tax your principal residence? There's, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. We've heard about it. There's, it's been rumored. When you sell or dispose of your personal residence, uh, I believe in the last three years, you have to fill out a form that CRA gets, which says this was my principal residence. And now there's some tracking going on as to who's selling their personal home. They know what you paid for it. They know what you sold for it. They're now seeing what amount of appreciation you've, you've enjoyed on that home. And there's a lot of money that's to be taxed. I just don't feel 100% confident that capital gains is not going to be coming to principal residents. It's happening, well, it's happened in the States forever. It's always been in the States. It may happen here. Lately, because of the massive gains people have been making, there's some argument that that could be coming down the pipelines. Uh, the topic today, just before the break, we were starting to talk about people who are facing retirement and whether or not this is finally the time to, to sell the primary residence or, or not. So let's uh, pick it up where we left off. 
uh, Faisal, you've, you've, you've said many times, you're, you're not a fan of the idea of selling real estate, but if someone's retiring, shouldn't this be the time? Yes. So before the break, we were talking about the possibility of capital gains tax being implemented on personal residents. Uh, look, I don't know if that's going to happen. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, that's like paying tax on money that you were already taxed on. So I don't support that at all. So let's just put a pin in that for a moment. And let's talk about why would someone want to sell their principal residence uh, and what benefits are there or, or, or what, what cons are there to doing that? Um, the benefit is simply this, that if you've accumulated other real estate and you have other sources of revenue to carry you through your retirement, you've already set up your portfolio, which I've always talked about. And I speak extensively, extensively of, of that in my book as well, that you should always accumulate your real estate portfolio and live off of that right through your retirement. But speaking of principal residence, this is your primary holding. This is the residence that you are paying taxes on. There's no tax uh, write-off on that. Um, so you look at the gains that you've enjoyed, especially over the last 18 months to 24 months. And let's just say your home is worth a million dollars. You are going to receive that $1 million in equity cash, which you can now speak to a financial advisor, find out before you do any of this to say, okay, what kind of conservative return can I expect on that million dollars? Let's just say it's 3%. That's $30,000 per year. $2,500 per month. That $2,500 a month can comfortably pay for a nice condo, allows you to travel, enjoy your life. Your cost of living is not going to increase by any means because now you don't have property taxes. You're not paying insurance. You're not paying maintenance. You're not buying new furnaces, windows, roof, whatever those things are that come along. And you're enjoying the market conditions that we've never enjoyed in my real estate career anyways, where we've had 30, 35% gains in 24 months. So is it time to take some money off the table? Is it time? And that could mean that's just send, sell a rental property instead. But remember, you're going to get taxed on that rental property. I'm certainly not a tax expert. I would encourage you to speak to your accountant, your financial advisor, and say, what can I expect as a return? Now, you'll save $10,000 a year in tax your property tax, 8,000 maybe. And you'll save um, a few thousand in maintenance per year. You'll save your insurance. So your cost of living will be your rental payment. That's it. So is there value in having that lump sum of money, million dollars, 800,000, 700,000, whatever that number is, as long as you're earning some money on that, that will finance your rental accommodation and will give you the opportunity to have freedom, travel, hopefully soon once COVID is over and um, just have a little bit more uh, disposable cash uh, and enjoy your retirement. So that's some of the advice that I've given to some of my senior uh, clients who are considering exiting because I don't want to say to them, don't worry, this is going to keep going. I don't know. We don't know. We don't have the crystal ball. I certainly am not pessimistic. I don't feel we're in a bubble. I feel we're at a new level. I feel that we're at a well-deserved valuation in the region of Waterloo. I don't, the, the gains that we've had, that appreciation is because we have become in the know now 
where we were sort of that ugly little cousin on the side nobody knew about. Now everybody has shone the light on us and they know who we are and values are increasing, but to levels where they already should have been. When our neighbors to the east were enjoying 8 to 10% growth per year, we were only getting 2 to 3%. Now we have played catch up and we're at a level that we should have been at all along. So if you were to look into your crystal ball then, Faisal, and what is your feeling about the idea of having to pay capital gains on a primary residence? How, how likely is that to happen in Canada if you were to go with your gut? My gut says, my gut says that it, it won't happen. That's my gut. But I don't know what in the infinite wisdom of the government they may come up with and what, how they would justify that. Because remember, your purchase of your principal residence was made with after-tax dollars. So they're going to tax after-tax dollars? Doesn't make sense to me. Uh, we haven't had the ability to write off our expenses on principal residence. Now, maybe it's going to be uh, moving forward, we're going to do this and we're going to let you write off certain expenses. So where, like are our current homeowners going to be grandfathered? Like, I just don't know how that would work or if that would work. Of course, it's being denied at all levels of government that that's not happening, but where there's smoke, there's fire. I just believe that there's something, maybe it's going to be in the form of a wealth tax where if you're, if your net worth, including your principal residence, exceeds X amount of dollars, then you're going to be taxed on that, uh, on the wealth that you've accumulated over the years. Is there any other tips that you want to pass along to seniors? I, 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 yes, there is actually. A lot of seniors reach out to me and they ask me about, uh, you know, should I put granite countertops in because I'm going to get ready to sell the home or should I do this? And most of the homes that... I've walked through where someone has lived in for 20, 25 years, have an enormous amount of pride of ownership in them. The homes show extremely well. And my recommendation in this market where we have no inventory is save your money. Don't go through those renovations. Don't put granite countertops and paint your, like unless your home really needs something to be maintained, maintain it, but don't make a massive capital expenditure on something just because you think that cosmetically that's going to make your home more desirable. The fact that your home is available in a market of no supply in itself makes your home very desirable. And then obviously the buyer can put in their own granite countertops if that's what they choose to get. Throughout my career, I have seen so many instances where someone has done a full renovation, put a new granite countertops and, and just done all kinds of enormous renovations to their home only to find the day after closing that that granite countertop is at curb side waiting for somebody to pick it up because it wasn't the right color. No, we don't, we don't want that to happen then. Uh, and uh, as we wrap up this topic again, is there anything else you want to offer to seniors? 
No, I think, you know, just be very mindful of the decisions that you're making right now um, and always consult a professional. Uh, certainly as a realtor, we can give you the valuation on your home, but we can't speak to the taxes and the implications. Of course, you know, even the income that you're going to receive on that million dollars that you have uh, 3% coming out, that will be taxable and may be taxable at a lower rate, but everyone's circumstances are different. So speak to a qualified financial advisor, speak to your accountant, speak to your lawyer, lawyer, speak to your families, make sure it's the right decision for you. Where we come in is simply to give you the value of your home. And that's the first step in learning uh, what you can do moving forward. All right, let's move to the other end of the spectrum then and start talking about first-time home buyers again. Uh, there are many folks who'd like to be a first-time home buyer in KW and they're worried that they, they just can't, that it's no longer within their reach, what do you think? Is it still a good time to buy or, or should they continue renting? So David, on this topic, I have to tell you, for as long as I've been a realtor, from 30 years ago to today, every adult senior homeowner has said to me, oh my goodness, our children will never be able to afford a home. These prices are ridiculous. Our children will never be able to buy a home. Every five years, you hear the same thing. How will our children ever buy homes? You have to remember 30 years ago, 25 years ago, interest rates were 13%. Today's interest rates are 1.5%. So let's keep that in mind that the cost of borrowing today is virtually zero compared to the cost of borrowing 20, 25 years ago. And people were still buying homes then. And people were still saying then, there's no way I'll be able to buy a house. And their parent and the kids' parents were saying, there's no way my kid will ever be able to afford a home. So just it's, there's always checks and balances. There's always opportunities. Today, as we look at the market, be very mindful of what you're buying make a strategic decision. You don't have to buy the absolute forever home today. Everybody comes in and says to me, oh, I want my forever home. Well, as soon as they say that to me, I say, I'll see you in five years because I've never been in a situation where somebody bought their first home and said, that's my forever home. They've always moved every five years. So I, I love when I, when I hear that. Um, but I'll tell you, there is no time like the present to purchase because you'll always look back five years and say, I should have done it then. Today, there's, we talked at the top of the show that inventory has started increasing in the lower price bracket. So there's a window of opportunity right now for people to say, okay, what market sector has an abundance of inventory? What has been sitting on the market more than two weeks? Look for those listings. Look at the days on market. If you, if you can't see it, ask a realtor. They can tell you when that home was listed, how long it's been listed for, how many price adjustments have occurred. Do your research. There are over 150 townhomes and semis for sale in the region of Waterloo today. And if you go back to January and February, maybe there was 12 or 15. So we're 10 times inventory. Get out there and start looking. Get qualified. Get out there and get into a home because there's opportunities opening up every day right now. Well, I, I wasn't aware that it had already increased that much this year. Do you think that the inventory in the lower priced homes is going to continue to increase? The reason the, the inventory has increased is because investors who owned 
five townhomes, seven townhomes have said, oh, wow, this is great. We're getting a 40% return in the last two years. I better exit now. I'm going to take some money off the table. So they're dumping that inventory into the marketplace. So the unintended consequences of that is that those bidding wars have declined. Instead of getting 10 offers on every listing, um, instead of offers even appearing on the listing date, there's no offers. We're hearing crickets. So this is the opportunity for buyers to say, okay, what's, what's in on offer date? Ask the agent, how many offers are there? No offers? Great. Then don't go in at asking. Don't go in at above asking. Make them an offer that you feel is reasonable. You have to assess what the value of the house really should be. So look at the comparables. Research is so important. And we're in such a great age now where you can Google absolutely anything and find out all the information you need before you make that decision or call a trusted advisor. And Faisal, what's your advice to young first-time home buyers who might tell you, I just, I want to get into the market, but I haven't been able to to save up the down payment adequately. Do you have any tips for them? There are opportunities to have that down payment. There's CMHC programs. Um, there's uh, RSP programs. There's so many different ways of uh, getting that initial down payment. Look, if someone's got the credit, the job, the ability, the motivation to do it, they should speak to the right people. Often it's just guidance that's needed to get in there. And a lot of individuals, young people just don't know how, they just don't know what. And you know, there are a lot of people who have families that are willing to be guarantors or co-sign or they know that these young people have the ability, they just need a little bit of support. And that support doesn't have to be indefinite. Most banks will only require a guarantor to be on, on file for one year. So it just gives them a little bit of a start so that they can get into the marketplace. So there's so many different ways of doing it. If you reach out to the right people, you'll get the right advice. Our, our final segment of the show, and we saved a, a real hot topic for the last segment, Faisal, and that's these new mortgage stress tests and, and how they're going to affect the market. What, what is your uh, insight? Well, the stress test is not something new. It's just a uh, an amendment to the existing stress test. So back in 2017, late 2017, uh, the government um, through OPSI, which is the regulatory body for the big banks, um, stated that regardless of what the published interest rate is, so the interest rate may be 2%, doesn't matter, you must qualify at 4.79% in order to be approved for that mortgage. So the stress test is in the event that the rates go up in five years to 4.79%, are you still going to be able to maintain your home and pay the mortgage payments and not have to, you know, go belly up here? So that's why that was, that was introduced to the marketplace. When that happened, the market didn't sort of react very well to it. We saw inventory starting to increase, days on market starting to increase, uh, people just said, well, this is it. I can't afford to buy. I'm just going to wait. And we saw a decline in the marketplace. Before we talk about what's happening now, let me explain that when the interest rates dropped to say 1.5%, which we're at right about now, that increased your buying power. So someone who could afford to pay $650,000 a year ago can now afford to pay $800,000 as a result of a lower interest rate. So their income's the same, their expenses are the same, just the interest rates are what have changed 
and, and created that ability. So that $650,000 home, all of a sudden became $800,000. It's not that you could go out and buy a better home now. You just paid more for the same home because your buying power increased. So that's what's created the frenzy that we're experiencing in the market today. This stress test, I believe, is to control this again and slow it down. And But even that slowdown is not going to be for a long term because we've already experienced what happened in 27, 2018. We had a six, nine month hiccup. And by the end of 2018, we were right back to the same frenzy that we are in again today. Today's proposal is to increase that from 4.79% to 5.25%. So that's going to now, again, have a negative impact on your qualifying. And what does that mean on an, on an average home uh, mortgage, let's say, of say, let's call it $300,000, your mortgage payment is going to go up by about $80 a month, which is what that stress test causes you to qualify for. And again, everyone's situation is going to be different. The rate is going to be different. Um, today's rate at uh, you know, 1.5 or 2%, whatever the rate you're getting is, uh, you know, five, your mortgage payment is going to be $500 less than what the published rate is, okay, which might be 5.2% or whatever it is. But when you actually are making the payment, it's based on that lower rate, not on the higher rate, but you have to prove that you can afford the higher rate. Now, when you go up to 5.25%, the negative impact over what is going on right now, 4.79 versus the 5.25 on a $300,000 mortgage is going to make about an $80 a month difference on the qualifying. It may not seem like a lot of money. However, when it comes to ratios, it can decline your affordability to 15% less than what you normally would have been able to buy. So if you were able to buy a, for 500, a $500,000 mortgage, you may have to get a $425,000 mortgage instead. So now you're looking for that extra $75,000 somewhere because you're just not going to qualify for it. So it could have a negative impact, not only to the buyer, but also to the seller, because you still have only a simple pool of buyers to extract from. And if that buyer is looking for that product and no one's making a bid, eventually you're going to look at lower bids if you need to sell. Just as rates go down, prices go up, rates go up or qualifying goes up or stress testing is incurred, you're going to be declining the value of real estate. Is this increase in the stress test really needed, given where interest rates are now and the fact that professionals like you have told me that you don't see them going up anytime soon? Do we really need to increase it to over 5%? I don't believe that there's a need. If you're qualified for 4.79, to, to, to make someone qualify at 5.25, it's really, it's, it's a pacifier or a Band-Aid just to, to say, here's what we're doing to try to control this crazy real estate market. I don't think that's going to happen. And let's not forget pent-up demand. Let's not forget for the last year and a half, we've had zero immigration happening in Canada. 300,000 people come to Canada every year. 150,000, give or take, come to Ontario. And those folks are coming in with lots of money. The real estate market is not going to cool down. Supply is not increasing. Permits are not being handed out fast enough. Land is not getting developed fast enough. There's a lot of factors here, and we could talk for another hour about this, but we'll do that another day. 
All right. Uh, let's take the last couple of minutes of the show then to once again talk about your book. How is it doing? It's doing very well. I'm very pleased with it. Uh, I, I was surprised uh, a couple of weeks ago when one of my high school teachers uh, called me and asked for a bunch of books so that they could uh, have one of the classes uh, have it as part of their curriculum to read. So that was a very uh, uh, flattering and grateful moment for me. So it's doing very well. I'm very pleased with the way things are going and good feedback on it. Uh, new listeners who might not have heard about the book, it's called The Real Deal. It's available on Amazon.ca. As, as Faisal said, it's doing very well. For folks who haven't heard us talk about it, what are some of the things that the book covers? Uh, the book covers uh, my journey as a, as, a, as a young person of being 18 years old, getting into this business, um, you know, facing the challenges that I did. And, and, and a lot of the book was to inspire young people who may be, you know, wondering or just sort of lost in life and, and, and showing them, hey, that if a guy like me, uh, straight out of high school, could eventually uh, realize some form of success in an industry, so can they. Um, the other is um, uh, just investment strategies for people, where to invest, how to invest, what, what works, what doesn't work. Basically, my failures, my successes, all there in an open book. And lastly, it's, a, it's also a guide to realtors where I talk about uh, my selling system, how I um, work in the industry, the type of formats that I have. And uh, so it's, it, it's, it's really uh, a complete sort of uh, journey and systems and strategies of everything that I've done all in the book. And it's an open, I, I get asked all the time about my story and what I've done. And I thought I'll put it in a book and then I can give it to people. And uh, now that you are a successful author, I mean, there's even an audiobook version. I don't know. Is there another book in you, Faisal? Will we see a chapter two down the road? The, the, the real, real deal. Yeah, the extra real deal. Oh, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to think about that one. All right. Well, if you'd like to get a hold of a copy of the book, again, go to Amazon.ca and uh, take a look or, or get the audiobook version. Faisal, thank you so much for being on the show with us once again. Always a pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to get a hold of Faisal Suzuwala, Canada's top real estate agent, go to homeshack.com or call 519-624-5555. Thanks for listening. Join us again next Saturday for more of Ask the Experts here on 570 News.